You're listening to part two of our chat with Melinda Chateauvert, author of Sex Workers Unite, a history of the movement from Stonewall to Slutwalk, as we discuss the details of sex work policy, what works, what doesn't, and the future of sex work in America. You're listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. Well, so I read the book Half the Sky a while ago, which was like national bestseller, yeah. and it's, you know, about women's rights around the world. And um, and it brought up, you know, the Netherlands versus Sweden. And it and it did say, okay, the Netherlands deregulate, or not deregulate, sorry, uh, legalized prostitution. Um, and that Sweden, of course, did this, you know, big stick, you know, criminalizing the men action and sort of stopped, stopped punishing the women, right? So what, but then what it said was that, that the Netherlands kind of allow because of that, the legal prostitution opened the doors, became like a storefront for sex trafficking behind the scenes. Because of like, demand went down in Sweden. Yes, of little, sorry, so the Netherlands of little girls, but meanwhile, Sweden actually saw a decrease in this, in the black markets, you know, sex trafficking. And th- I guess they're arguing or they're not, I mean, the book kind of is inconclusive. It's like, well, which one's better? But I was really surprised to read that about the Netherlands and go, well, gosh, I always thought legalizing is the way to go. You know, I did my own paper in college on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but even then almost like a much more rudimentary, you know, you like your book is so informative. Um, I wish I had this resource when I was doing that. But anyway, but yeah, so I wanted to comment on that. If you okay, comment one of the on things that, that happened in, uh, one of the things that, First of all, is to understand the, the national cultural context of decriminalizing or legalizing prostitution in Amsterdam was a very different set of motives than what was going on in Sweden. Um, in Amsterdam, uh, one of the things that the Dutch are not more sexually active or permissive than any other society, and in fact, many of my Dutch friends would say they are even less permissive than most people, but what they were interested in doing is understanding that people are going to buy sex or want to buy sex, and rather than, uh, you know, why not create a harm reduction situation where the people who are going to do it have at least some protection from the state and don't face violence, don't, you know, can be protected from violence and protected from other forms of exploitation. However, in doing so, so that's how it came about. However, in doing so with a legalization process that required permits, that required all sorts of other kinds of hoops to jump through in order to, to be a legal sex worker, um, you, by any time you create a legal market, you create a black market. Okay, because there are people who can't jump through those hoops to get the licensing. So uh, people who are immigrating, and oftentimes what's also happening is some people are immigrating to Amsterdam to do sex work or to Germany or to France or to all these other places where, hey, guess what, sex work is not criminalized, and engage in prostitution, engage in sex work, because that's the only kind of job they can get because they don't have what we would call a green card, they don't have a work permit, and it's the most remunerative work they can get. So what we talk about with trafficking, in other words, is that we're actually talking about an immigration system that's broken. We're not talking about the sex industry per se. The sex industry benefits from a broken immigration system, but the people who engage in it, because they can only get into it or do it because they have no other work options are obviously very marginalized 
and living on the edge in the sense that when something happens to them, whether it's in Amsterdam, whether it's in Sweden, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Canada, that they end up not being able to have any kind of protection because they're, they're fearful they're going to get deported. They're going to get okay. exploited in further kinds of ways. Now you raise a, a huge point for me that, that resonated, which is in your book as well, that um, one of the quotes was, you know, target poverty, not prostitution. And I guess mm-hmm. just what you're saying about the Netherlands, it's like they still haven't changed the way they're looking at it. They're just like um, tolerating it. Or something, you know. So, yeah. so it's it is it's, about toleration. It is totally about toleration. Yeah, and I and I just you know realizing how much of yeah the vulnerability is coming from this issue of poverty, and yet everyone's it's almost it feels like a scapegoat. Like, well, we're going to focus on the moralizing of sexuality instead of instead of the real problems, right. the deep, the real you know deep seated issues that are that are motivating our choices. And I think this is one of the conversations that's always been the most interesting for me with even abolitionist feminists, okay? When they get interested and they say, well, I really just can't, I just can't condone prostitution. And I say, fine, don't, let's, let's think about beyond all that. Let's think about what puts, what makes it an attractive occupation, an attractive line of work for a lot of people. And that is because we have no living wage. We have no guaranteed housing. We have no guaranteed health care. We do not have child care. We do not have education that's available. And if you really are interested in abolishing prostitution, let's get a living wage. Let's get better housing. Let's get health care. Because for many people who are engaged in the sex industry, they're doing so part-time, maybe full-time, but because they don't have a way of making a living that they can survive in this current economy. Right, out of survival. And it's not just survival. I mean, I don't want to, I think it's also wrong to just say survival, because I also, you know, there are a lot of sex workers who work regular jobs, but it's just not enough. You know, they have this, this, you know, and so that's the extra bit of money that they need at the end of the month to do what they have, you know, to send their kid to school, to buy lunch, to buy, you know, a subsidized lunch for their kids. Well, just to clarify, abolitionists, you just, you mean people who want to legalize it? Or no, abolitionists, like- who, abolitionists are generally referred to those who are anti-prostitution and anti-pornography. Those are the abolitionists. They want to really? abolish prostitution. Okay. Mindy, I hear what you're saying. And, and, um, the thing about, the thing about it is when I, it's like, you know, we all need to survive period. Like everyone needs a job. Everyone needs to make money. And I like, yes, could I have chosen to make money any other number of ways? Sure. But this came across my path. It sounded amazing because I've always been fascinated by this stuff. It was something that I genuine bisexuality, yes. And by courtesans and all of that. And it was something I just genuinely was totally on board with exploring in my in my core for you know whatever whatever makeup I have. It was a joy. And again, yes, I needed to make a living. And so just like, well, yeah, I could have done engineering if engineering was something that really like struck yeah. my fancy and was something fun. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, we all need to make a living anyway. It's not, I guess I just say this to say that it's not always out of just necess- necessity and that there's no other options. I- absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I totally validate that. I totally validate that. I guess what I'm talking about is if you want to make 
sex work something that people choose to do not because of economic necessity. Right. Because that's really what they want to do. That is where they feel that they're going to have the most enjoyable work that they can find. Rather than making it because, because we don't want to often acknowledge capitalism, <laughs> right? Right, right? Rather than making it as economic necessity, then I think that's where we're really, you know, I, and, that's, and that's the kind of argument that at least resonates with a lot of people who, you know, and even in that situation, they would say, yeah, fine, if you're choosing to do this because this is what you want to do, I'm not going to object. Sure. When I think you, you, A, coming from a more, you know, you're coming from a privileged perspective, like yes, having yes, the access to I'm education, aware. having, no, but, and, and so I think it is exactly what Mindy's saying, which is just, yeah, that ability to choose it and to, to be able to come into it from a, an empowered, an place. empowered place. Yes. Which I, yes. Um, for the one other point I want to make, though, can I make one other point there? The yes, other, please. the other part, the other people who people say, but. They don't they like don't it, like they don't they because don't, it's hard or not very good. And as many as people have pointed out, it's work. It's work. Exactly. It's work is supposed to be something, something that you like to do. Some days you love it, some days you love it. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for pointing was, that out. It, there are elements of that in every job. That was a revelation for me, A, like talking with you, like when we first met and we connected on it, mm -hmm. you know, and I remember, of course, you were timid to like share it. And then it was, you know, once you knew and I was very open to it, I was like, wow, cool. Uh, but but I remember that being um, what I just lost my thought. <laughs> being what, like a, a, a blot or some. I no, know. I literally forgot. You Sorry, but it was something it's that I not always oh, yeah. No, I remember. Right. I remember being, you know, like I had a job where I was sometimes bored and frustrated. And we had, a, I remember, you know, once or twice having conversations where you're like, ah, oh, maybe I want to do something else. And, but not from like a, I was violated kind of, you know, but, right. but rather, you know, like, ah, oh. and I remember saying, I think I said it to you. I said, well, that's the, that's the job. I said, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to feel it if you switch over to, you know, the Anything. line of work I'm in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, the ups and downs. So, so, my question, Minnie, where do we go from here? Like we we just we talked about the Nordic law and how things are not working pretty much yeah. anywhere. <laughs> so so um, as this is becoming as this topic is gaining more traction, I feel uh, right now in society, how can we do things differently or where do you. And maybe and where do you see this going? In here, terms in of US. Policy, yeah, here in the U.S. in terms of policy and and accepting this and making this more well, progress positive. yeah well, a healthier progress. society i feel like that's ultimately what we're discussing which is like people on the fringe i think there's I think actually there's three, three ways the movement is developing and i'm not and they're supporting each other although sometimes they should be a little bit siloed one traditional area that the, mo the movement has focused on is to have sex work recognized as private sex private sexuality that, that would then fall into something like Lawrence versus Texas and other kinds of sexual privacy laws because the state cannot tell you what you do in your bedroom. So that's the first investment argument that many people are making in the fact there's a large lawsuit that people are getting ready to file in California uh, on youth Lawrence versus Texas of 2005 to say prostitution should not be criminalized because it's private because there are other people, so that's because number one, um, and that's sort of private. Excuse me. I was sorry, you cut out real quick. It's, you said because it should not be because it's private. 
because, because it is private. It is private. Okay. You know, what you do in your own bedroom should not be criminalized. Right, right. Okay. Okay. okay, so it's a simple, it's a simple straight, straightforward argument. argument. The second, the second uh, movement, movement is the one that is really focused more on issues of violence against sex workers and has particularly a refrain around the violence that women of color, and particularly trans women of color, are experiencing. Um, and that includes people like Monica Jones, a transgender sex worker and MSW student at Arizona State University, who recently went through horrendous experiences because she was, she was, it appears to be targeted by the police for her, her activism against a rescue project. And she was finally cleared of charges just a couple months ago, but that's been another very important standoff between post-feminist rescuers and between sex workers who want to determine for themselves what their lives mean and what their work means. Right. Uh, then there's a third one, which I like to call the cultural one, which is, you know, everything from Beyonce to burlesque to the slut walk and all the other kinds of things that are saying, hey, women like sex, it's okay if we like sex, and also say when we want it and when we don't want it and the conditions under which we want to have it or don't want it. And I see some of that being very sex worker friendly. Uh, it often start, started, I think, with sex workers trying to come out with a sort of cultural changing the narrative. And I think it's been effective. I'm always, it's, it's, it's effective in some areas. Obviously, some parts of the country are very effective. And then I think about Oklahoma. And I know it's not. you got to think, you know, about where all How does it actually... It can, it's having a very difficult time to get beyond, you know, the major cities and urban kind of places where many people feel it's okay, and then you got to deal with the Bible Belt. Right. So, I mean, it is, it's it is an evolution, and it's a process, and I I, I feel like it's going to take many many years still. Oh, a lot, I mean, of, a lot of progress made though, evidenced in your in your kind book. Of, yes. Yes. True. Um, and I think you know, just look at how quickly we got to gay marriage. Yeah, you know, that's why a lot of people think this lawsuit is going to be effective because gay marriage happened so quickly, and they're following the same uh, model that says, you know, the more sex workers you know, the more normalized it becomes. The question around its criminalization becomes yeah. more curious, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, and my, I mean, my big dream um, is that there is a day when I guess I'm more focused on the cultural end of things. Um, you know, my, yeah, yeah my out filters. Yeah. My big dream being like, I, I can't wait for a day uh, that I, you know, you could come out in the open and just, and I, for me, I would reterm everything. I feel prostitution uh, and, and sex work has, it's too like it's loaded negatively. And so I would want to come up with a different vocabulary for this, industry and what people do and like again for me it was more sexual healing so if I could come out and be like oh yeah I'm a sexual healer and and that's just a it's an accepted thing you know and nobody really bats their eyes and and honestly I feel like it's a it can be an incredibly honored um it, I don't know thing in society and I think uh, 
So anyway, I, I guess so that's my dream is that it, it's, it's not, it's not only it moves from being um, judged to being something that's even maybe perhaps respected. Yeah. But I also yeah. feel like yeah. in a time and I love doing our show because I feel like we're in a time where as a woman in America, like I'm entitled to talk about this. And I look at even like, I'm pretty open with my mother at this point. Um, but like, I, you know, I'll hear her make comments that, you know, you can tell her embedded in her context of growing up as, you know, one of the first women to attend a university that she went to that didn't allow women until, you know, until 1980. Um, so just, just like these things where she, you know, I see where she's still sensitive or still has shame around her sexuality that I've been entitled to bypass. Right. Um, and that shows change as well. You're right. There is progress. I'm just impatient. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. that's yeah. we have a show. <laughs> about what happened to her when I told her that I was writing this book, who freaked out. My mother freaked out. She still can't read my book. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and she's not somebody you would expect to be approved. I mean, you know, she's been serial and serially monogamous to more men than I can count. But <laughs> 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 I could probably, but I haven't. Um, but but, uh, but she just the idea of her daughter writing about prostitution just it just threw her for a total loop. Uh, there's an essay that I have on my blog, on my, on my website, that I, that it, it's on there, that, that talks about how we dealt with it. You know, my mother's the same age as Margo St. James, the founder of the Coyote Movement. If you call it your old tired ethics, the first prostitutes' rights organization in the country. And, you know, I sort of imagine them having a conversation in that, and it's just a very interesting way to think about, yeah, how have we changed from... You know, her going to school in the early 1960s, no, late, sorry, 1950s, to, uh, you know, the present. So, right. absolutely. Progress. Um, Mindy, one last thing uh, in terms of what, you know, how anybody can get involved in this conversation. Let's look at mm. the politics of modern day. How to make change. You had mentioned some um, perspectives uh, that Hillary and Biden might have. Um, Hillary Clinton. Sorry, Biden. yes. <laughs> um, so well, I was reminded about this recently from another essay that I was reading, and I uh, so that just to think about the policy debate. There is a state about there's the uh, trafficking in women uh, um, report. In fact, the the the, 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 the it was called the TIP report, trafficking and persons report, that's issued by the State Department. That came out uh, and was mandated by the by Congress as a result of the activism of these abolitionist feminists and Christians in the uh, 1990s. And what they wanted to do was to focus on human trafficking, and they wanted to make sure that uh, the State Department was tracking how various nations were addressing trafficking. Now, they wanted to talk about it as sex trafficking, but they actually understood under international law human trafficking, which actually is much more prevalent, had to be also addressed. Well, what happened is uh, Hillary at the time was supporting a broad definition for the, for the new legislation that would have abolished the traditional definition of trafficking as conditions that are forced, fraud, or coercion. 
They want, she wanted to have that, she and the abolitionists wanted to take that language out of the uh, legislation so that anybody could be traffic whether or not there was force, fraud, or coercion. You, you could voluntarily traffic, in other words, you could traffic yourself. And that would make anybody who was engaged in prostitution consensually also described as a victim of trafficking. Oh God! So wow. I, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. as, as the Secretary of State, she enforced that definition. Yeah, but that's yeah. Basically, so yeah. So what we've seen happen while she was Secretary of State was this broadening, so that anybody who was engaged in prostitution, consensually or not, was considered a trafficked person. Wow. And as a result, too, the State Department began withdrawing money and punishing governments, particularly developing nations that were reliant upon U.S. money, who refused to get rid of their definition, uh, refused to criminalize prostitution. So that, for example, Brazil turned down USAID money because it refused to criminalize prostitution, which was required under the law. That's what Olympia yeah. Hillary's watch. Joe Biden, as this law was being debated in various variations of it, refused to allow that part. They refused to take out fraud or coercion section of that and insisted that it remain in there. Wow, great. So it's, I mean, they're resulting in a lot of enmity from feminists who thought that this was not the thing to do. So this is an interesting debate that I don't know is ever going to make it to the public platform uh, in terms of the, you know, the follies of the presidential election. But nonetheless, I think it's an important thing to remember that these are issues that we do have records on for people who are running for president, and we should be aware of them. I agree. Can I ask I quickly? I uh, and I'm not sure if you know about it, but I sort of, you know, recently joked, you know, Bernie Sanders, the first female president, because he was addressing <laughs> issues of birth control and right women's rights in a way that I hadn't heard so lucidly in a while. Um, I wondered if you had, I don't know, thoughts heard, on if you're comfortable heard, commenting on about his stance on kind anything. of. Yeah, like like they are the liberal audience, right? So technically, Hillary and Joe Biden, they're they're like what the sex workers, they're the and and feminists. That's our team, right? right <laughs> so how right, do we, right. how do you know? And sometimes I feel like they're getting filtered information that comes to the top, and they're making the best choice they can based on what they know, which is you know like for Normal. me, just talking. Yeah, reading your book has been eye opening, right? Um, right? So I don't know. I guess if you have well, a comment on let me let me put in a plug, okay, not so much a plug, but let me put in a document and sort of think about it. The uh, There was a sex workers magazine that's now ceased publication, but it was fabulous while it was there. And when, in the 2008 elections, it actually put, it created a, uh, a guide sheet on what what the presidential candidates stood for in terms of issues that were of interest to sex workers. And so you would be able to compare all of them. Now, the current, yeah, so it was great. You know, they were like, this is how sex workers should consider their vote when they go to the cabinet, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if we're going to do that for this election, but we do still have a magazine called Tits and Sass. It's all online. Wait, Tits and Sass? And hopefully somebody, Tits and Sass. And I do hope that the people there decide to do the same work and put together where are the candidates on issues around sex work and trafficking. 
Great. Wonderful. Cool. That's Thank a you. great resource. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Melinda Shadowert, Mindy, Thank you so much for talking with us. Honestly, it's been it's been really enlightening and very fun for me. Um, so I really appreciate you being here. Um, I had a lot of angst around the topic because I didn't know what was right, legalization or not. Really? And I was always like frustrated. So this book just helped me. Yeah. And talking with you really illuminated a lot of, you know, confusion I had. We still have a lot of work to do as a nation yeah. and a world yeah. around it. But thank you for um, for contributing your book and your and your work on it. If you want to check out um, more of Mindy's work, you can go to sexworkersunite.com, and you can also follow her on Twitter at horror. How would you pronounce this? Horstorian. Horstorian. Yeah. Horror so there's story, an e, that's an awesome. e. There's an Horstorian. E, Horstorian. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, and thank you. Yeah, you're listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. You can find more of our content on pbwithta.com. And tweet us at tasextalk. Yeah.